0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin spoke about the testimonies of a number of Durst trial witnesses, including Susan Berman's friend and former Saturday Night Live cast member Lorraine Newman. In this episode, Lewin takes us through the questioning of more witnesses, including Mella Kaufman, the woman who considered herself to be Susan Berman's daughter. That's all coming up A few quick program notes because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. The quality is often not optimal and sometimes you can hear heavy traffic rushing by. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that John describes during this episode, I will list the installments of the jury duty podcast that cover these parts of the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Finally, when Lewin references a juror named Carmen, he is talking about jury person Carmen Kliteka, whose interview we presented in Season 2, bonus episodes 16 through 30 of this podcast. We now rejoin my conversation with John Lewin as he speaks about the testimonies of doctors Steven Safier and Paula Marcus. Sapphire and Marcus married one another after meeting when both were medical school classmates of Kathy Durst at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the early 80s. As Lewin explains, Sapphire would rise to become president and CEO of Montefiore Medicine, one of the preeminent health systems in the state of New York.
2: So a couple of other classmates of Kathy testified, Stephen Saffier and Paula Marcus?
3: Yeah, so they were very important to me because, first of all, Steve, who is a very humble guy, was head of the entire Montefiore health system. So we don't have a similar position in Los Angeles. So the head of CEDARS or the head of UCLA or the head of USC is not, it would almost, it's probably close to the equivalent of maybe two or all three of those put together. So he's in charge of not just the hospital, but he's in charge of Einstein Medical School. It's a number of hospitals, it's a whole health system, including a medical school. His position was, whatever you need, let me help. And so he had an incredible credibility He had also been a classmate of hers. And so he was able to basically say, yeah, there's no way that she would have just taken off. She was well thought of. No, she didn't just get in here because of her family. He was also able to testify. You know, he ran the whole health system. If the Durst were somehow these, you know, power brokers at the hospital, he would certainly know, and they weren't. So he really put that whole issue to bed. That's, by the way, another example of the defense decided, Dick in particular, that I am going to convince the jury that Kathy got in to medical school, not based on her own merits, but based on the family connections. Now, the first problem was it was absolutely untrue, and there was no evidence of it. But the bigger problem is even if it was true, It not only doesn't help your case, it hurts it, because in this, with these women on my jury, particularly with Carmen, you know, as a doctor herself, you're basically telling these people that this woman did not deserve the accomplishments that she had earned. That was also impeached by Marion Watlington, who talked about how brilliant Kathy was, what a great student. So that's yet, again, another example of the defense reaching for a shiny object. Ooh, let's let's argue like Bob did that Kathy didn't really deserve to get into medical school. But where's it going? How does it help you? It doesn't. They never realize it. They never realize it even at the end of the trial. They're still making the argument. So he was able to address all those issues. His wife, Paula, they had met in medical school. Paula was a psychiatrist. And Paula also had great perspective. And I remember one of the things that, and it was amazing to us, Dick had a few things that he just loved to talk about, just couldn't help himself. And we used to laugh. His favorite subjects were New York geography. So we would have a witness up there, and Dick would want to show how much he knew about New York geography. So he would have Nick Chavin up there testifying about important stuff, and he would be asking Nick. So now you go down 12th Street, and now that connects up to Lenox, with, which runs east and west, right? Uh, yeah. And now you can get there by taking the X subway, etc. and we'd be thinking, wait, what? doesn't make any sense. He likes to talk about New York geography. He likes to talk about cocaine. That was another favorite. He likes to talk about how Kathy had not earned her way into medical school, and he liked to talk about um the tidal patterns uh, of Galveston Bay. Now, one of the reasons he liked to talk about the tidal patterns of Galveston Bay is that that's weather-related, and Dick had some knowledge about that because Dick is a pilot. So, I remember with Paula Marcus, Paula talked about running into Kathy, and Dick asked her a series of questions, I still remember, So when you were talking to her, what side of the park were you on? And she's literally looking at him. She is just perplexed. She doesn't understand. It's basically, what do you mean? What, like, what, well, what direction were you facing? Like, he's going to impeach what Kathy said in the conversation by the idea that, that she does not remember specifically which direction she was facing when she had the conversation. It was absurd. So, again, I thought that Paula and Steve were very effective. They were also somewhat hostile to the defense because they did not like what they were doing, and they showed it. And although certain people did not like that, in speaking to the jurors later, my understanding is that they were very sympathetic. They also, the jurors, knew what the defense was trying to do. They didn't like it either, and I think all of them enjoyed the fact that, you know, Paula in particular, she wasn't taking any shit from me. She whipped it right back at them. And so I thought that they both did an excellent job.
1: Hold up.
0: We begin the next part of today's conversation with John talking about the testimony of Elizabeth Jones, the housekeeper of the Durst Country Home in South Salem, New York.
2: Elizabeth Jones, the housekeeper? Yeah, so
3: Elizabeth Jones was important because in the midst of Kathy allegedly being missed, not dead, not, you know, murdered, just missing, Bob throws away all of her stuff, including some valuable stuff and tells Liz, just get rid of it. And I remember Liz, there was a quote, which is, it was by Christmas. Okay, and she took a bunch of stuff. So
2: she was This is this is, the- And this is at the South Salem house, correct?
3: This is at the South Salem house. We had a similar situation with Karen Minitello where Bob got rid of all the stuff at the East 86th Street apartment. So in essence, very quickly and the way that I argued it, and I think it's true, is that, you know, Normally, when horrible things happen, right, the way the human mind absorbs things is we go through, you know, the five stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, you know, questioning, bargaining, and then acceptance. Bob went straight to acceptance, okay? Okay, yeah, she's gone. I guess she's dead. not how it works. So the reason Bob got rid of her stuff was... Bob wasn't going through any stages of grief. Bob had no question about what happened. He knew she was dead because he killed her, and he knew she wasn't coming back, so he got rid of all her stuff.
2: He went through anger before he killed her, and then he went straight to acceptance after he
0: killed her.
3: (laughs) I, I think that's about right. I think that is true.
0: In this next section, Lewin speaks about the questioning of Stephen Greenhouse, whose testimony was presented in tandem with the recorded conditional witness examination of Miriam Barnes. We covered Miriam Barnes' testimony that Susan Berman told her, quote, if anything happens to me, Bobby did it, end quote, in season two, episode seven, as well as in episode five of this season. Greenhouse testified that Barnes said the same to him over three decades earlier.
2: So, a lot of these are companions with recorded testimony. Seton Greenhouse was obviously paired with Miriam Barnes.
3: Let me address that though, it's really important. So one of the problems that, again, that the defense did not think out was they never had the coherent strategy of, are these witnesses who are reporting the statements from Susan? Are they honest but mistaken? Are they lying? Are they neither lying nor mistaken? Susan was lying. And if they would have done five minutes of an ounce, they would have realized that there's no way you can argue that they are all honest but mistaken, because the problem is, is they're all telling similar stories at different times. Many of them never know each other, didn't know each other. And most importantly, we could demonstrate that Miriam Barnes told her story of Susan's admissions about what she had done at the time it happened. So there's no way that it could have been memories implanted by the jinx or things that were read, et cetera, because not only did she remember Susan telling her this, she told Steve Greenhouse before any mention was ever made of any of this in any newspaper or periodical. That is an undisputed statement that I knew from the start. I don't think they ever understood that. I don't think they ever knew that, you know what, you're not going to be able to argue that Miriam Barnes is a product of implanted memory or of mistake. So Steve Greenhouse was hugely important because Steve, again, unconnected to Susan, he's just Miriam's friend, but he's very credible. He's a reporter and a lawyer. And he's saying, listen, she reported this to me back you know, in 2000, right after Susan was killed. So that was his importance, and it was huge. I'm not sure if you interviewed Chesnoff and Nagarin today, if they still understand.
2: Yeah. John Ross, the special agent.
3: So John Ross was important. So one of the issues that we had was we know a call is made to the dean Monday morning. We know that happened. The defense is saying it's Kathy. We're saying it's Susan. John was important because if the call was more than, if I remember, six minutes long, it would absolutely have shown up in the phone records. and There were no such records from Riverside Drive at all where Captain supposedly was. So that meant that there's no way that that call could have been placed from there. So that's why he was so important. Now, the defense was always free to argue, well, listen, just because Kathy said she was sick that day doesn't mean she really was. One of the things they never did in this case, never, never explained it, said it was, okay, your theory is that Kathy called in sick, right? So where was she and what happened to her? So if she called in sick, where is she? Do you realize they never dealt with that even slightly in the entire trial? N- nothing. Where is she? I mean, you got to have something. So that's why John Roth was important. He basically nailed down that um, if the call had been made and it were longer than six minutes, there would have been evidence who would have seen it, and it wasn't there.
0: Next, we discuss Mella Kaufman, the woman who thought of herself as Susan Berman's daughter. We covered her testimony in Season 2, Bonus Episodes 4 and 22 of this podcast.
2: Next, we have someone that I think was an extremely impactful witness for you and that was mella kaufman tell me about the process of getting her on the witness stand and what she contributed to your case
3: so mella did not want to testify she did not want to be involved in this case she never wanted to be involved in this case and uh, we were able to interview her i took the lead on her interviews before she came to court habib ended up doing her examination and did a beautiful job on it and she was great She's another witness where a lot of people on my team were very apprehensive about calling her, about how she was going to do. Everybody wanted to call her, but there was some discussion do we really have to and is it going to go well? I was very confident always that she was going to be great. She was terrific. I remember the cross was worse than terrible. You know, again, you have to have a plan, you have to know what that plan is, and you have to understand what the limits are of that plan. And it's as if the defense decided, here's what we're going to do, we don't care what the evidence is, we don't care what the theory is. And they went in and tried to go after her, and she destroyed them. So she was devastating under that, and she was twice as devastating as you
2: If I might add, what I felt that she did for your case was, you know, you were very clear from the outset that Susan was a flawed human being. But what Mela did probably more than anybody else was humanize Susan and give real meaning and value to her life in the eyes of the jury.
3: I think that's definitely true. You know, again, I made sure... I do this in every case. I did it with Susan. I did it with Kathy. Never did I try to pretend that they were anything other than who they were. I didn't try to present Kathy as perfect. She wasn't. I didn't try to present Susan as perfect. What's very clear is that Susan participated in covering up a homicide by Bob Durst. And whether Susan thought it was a homicide, I'm very confident that she didn't because Bob wanted to tell her that it wasn't, and because she wanted to believe that it wasn't, she still participated in having Bob cover up getting rid of his wife, and just because you get murdered doesn't change the kind of person you are in the life you've led, but Susan was complicated, you know, she had many good qualities and some bad qualities, she was incredibly loyal, and Susan was extremely good to Mella, but... She was also incredibly difficult for Mella to deal with in a lot of ways because Susan was an extremely complicated person. And part of that complication was manipulations and her attempts to control. After a while, Mella couldn't take it anymore. Now, that doesn't change the good things that Susan did for Mella. Susan was the closest thing Mella ever had to a mother. But it also doesn't mitigate the fact that some of the things that Susan did We're not helpful with Miller. So, yeah, Miller gave a very honest characterization of Susan. And she humanized Susan in a way that others didn't, but in an honest way. Not Susan was wonderful, Susan was perfect. So, yeah, I think she was very effective. I thought Habib did a brilliant job getting that out of her.
0: Next, we speak about undoubtedly the most hostile witness to the prosecution in this case, Doug Oliver. We covered Oliver's testimony in Season 2, Episode 36, and in Bonus Episode 24 of Season 2 of the podcast.
2: Okay, my favorite subject to talk about with you, Doug Oliver.
3: Uh Oh, so some of the most fun I had on the trial. So I wanted to call Doug Oliver early in the case because I knew who he was. I knew that he was Bob's friend. I knew that would be the first example that the jury would hear of somebody who was clearly on Bob's side and who I thought not only lacked complete credibility, was a complete liar, but was one of the most arrogant, insufferable people I'd ever met. I realized this when I spoke to him on the phone. So one advantage that I have, Terry, is I know that I'm taping every one of these conversations. I know what I'm saying. I know what I sound like. I know the jokes that I'm making. I don't do anything accidentally. So I'm aware, and if you listen to the Doug Oliver conversations, the first one is with Habib. And he is a complete asshole, Oliver is. Habib is simply asking him, the whole point is, will you talk to him? All he has to do is say no and we'll never call him again. But he won't because he wants to know what we know and what we're doing. So he keeps Habib on for a long time. Well, who are you talking to? Well, what have they told you? Well, why should I tell you something if you're not going to tell me anything? And Habib is very nice, et cetera. I call him a couple of weeks later, and I remember I want to talk to him. He said, it's bad time. So I say, no no problem, no problem. You know, when do you want me to call? Call me X time, wherever it is. So I call him, and he doesn't answer. He doesn't call me back. I eventually get him on the phone, and he literally says, I was on a plane. I was on a plane. Uh, well, you're on a plane. You told me to call you at that time. What do you want me to do? I was on a plane. Okay. I mean, I mean, it is what it is. What do you want from me? Well, uh, you listen. You're going to pick that time. Hey, hey. If you're gonna, if you're gonna act like this, i gonna... He was just beyond an asshole. So I know that if I can just control myself, let the jury hear all this stuff, they're going to hate him. So if you listen to those interviews with Doug, the beginning ones, it's basically him being a complete jerk and me trying to be as nice as I can be. Well, yeah, why don't we let's just start it over? What do you mean start it over? What does that mean? What are you talking about? I'm not a lawyer, and I know that a jury will eventually be hearing this whole thing, and they're going to hate it. So when I called Bob to testify, Doug Oliver testify, there was conversations they were talking about having Doug Oliver testify as a character witness which I just, I would have saved money for them to do that. So I had said to them, which I would always do, well, listen, so you don't have to bring him back. If you want, I will agree to let you take the witness out of order, meaning that when I'm done with him, you can do your character stuff, and then I'll just cross him. I wanted them to put their money on Doug Oliver in front of the jury as early as possible. So what happened is he comes to court, and one of the problems with, the legal profession, is it's very traditional. So people do things a certain way because that's how it's always been done. So as an example, you will hear people, and I was criticized, well, how come he is impeaching Doug Oliver with his credibility before he's asked him any questions? That's not how you do it. You hear these these idiot experts saying that. Well, of course, that might not be how most people do it, but that's because most people just, they're not very creative. They're Oftentimes, not particularly competent, and they just do it because that's how it's always been done. I have found that when I want to gut a witness, the best way to gut a witness is to, first of all, destroy their credibility before they ever talk about anything substantively. So by the time you get to their substantive testimony, the jury wouldn't believe them if they end up saying that the earth is round. Or, in Dr. Lobson's case, that she's not sure. So that's what I did with Doug Oliver. So I knew that he was going to come in and he was going to be a complete asshole. He now had a lawyer, so I came in and uh, very quickly when he is arguing about some statement that he knows he said and he's like, "I don't remember it," etc. I said, "Okay, this is going to be this is going to be fun," and I get him designated an adverse window. And a lot again, a lot of the commentators had a problem with it because they don't know what the history is about how he had refused to give a phone number to be on call. So I had a whole lot of fun with him. I had all the clips ready to go. I had him dialed up and set up. And you know, listen, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be modest about it. You know, I think we destroyed. I don't know that he could have been destroyed any worse. Uh, We had every clip. He fell into every trap and. If it looked like I was having more fun than a fraternity at the Playboy Mansion, you're right. Absolutely. I could not have had more fun than that examination. I never wanted it to end.
0: That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next episode as John Lewin talks about more witness testimonies, including that of Robert Durst's brother, Douglas. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hold
1: up!
0: You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.